Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. It was still really early in the evening, but it was also the dead of winter. So it was dark outside in the small country chapel where I was that night and where I spent most nights back then, or most Sunday nights back then. The darkness was not overcoming the few feeble lights that we had in the ceiling, but it was not exactly fleeing from them in fear either. The heat pump wasn't really up to managing the cold either. And I sat in my chair there in that chapel, facing a semicircle of other chairs, each one of them filled with the devoted souls who came every Sunday night when we did our Bible study. And we opened it up that night the way we always did, by reading a song. I'd read it slowly, and we would pause for silence, and then we'd talk. I don't remember which of the psalms we were reading on this particular winter night, but I remember that it was not one of the easy ones. For example, it was probably not Psalm 68 that we were reading that night. But if I read you a bit of Psalm 68, you will get the gist of that psalm that we read that evening. And it will sound as foreign to you, perhaps, as it did to us that night. When the Almighty scattered kings there, snow fell on Zalman. O mighty mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with envy, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount where God desired his abode, where the Lord will reside forever with mighty chariotry, twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, the Lord came from Sinai into that holy place. As we read those words, or something like them, there in the cold and in the dark down a country road in South Alabama, I remember being struck by how improbable our scene was. The dear folks who were in front of me were loggers and factory workers and surveyors. And they were very sharp, they were very bright, they were perceptive people, but none of them were especially devoted to the humanities outside of church. If I had said to them, hey guys, I'm starting a book club and we're going to read 3,000 year old Semitic poetry that doesn't rhyme. They would have given me the same look that some of you are giving me right now. And I want to be very clear. If you invite me to a book club like that, the odds are I will give you the same look in return. But here we were, bundled up, huddled over our Bibles, reading these ancient words that spoke of chariots and strange mountains we couldn't pronounce or even imagine what they looked like. We didn't see too many of those sorts of things in the pine forests of South Alabama. And it occurred to me that out of all the strange things that Christians do, perhaps none is more, un is more dauntingly unfamiliar to the uninitiated than our insistence on reading this ancient book. Over and over again we read it, and we insist that it still matters today. This is unusual in our culture. We are not in a culture that has much use for old words. 
when my grandmother was entering into to middle school. The number one hit in the country had a chorus that goes, mares eat oats and goats eat oats and little lambs eat ivy, kittle eat ivy too, wouldn't you? I don't need to tell you, that would not have charted when I was 14 years old. By the time I was 14, the number one song on the radio was Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. And for the 14-year-olds among us now, the number one song has been for a very long time, it seems now, Old Town Road by Little Nas X. And though we've heard the words over and over and over for the last few months, my bet is that 50 years from now, none of the words of any of those three songs are going to come up in everyday conversation for you. We are not a culture that holds on to old words for very long. We forget them and let them go. And yet, through the years, for the next 50 and long after that, God willing, when God's people come together to worship, we will insist on reading the same scriptures that have been with us since the very first century. And we don't just read these words, but we put them at the heart of what we do. We make it the high point of every worship service, the moment where we read these words and then we attend to them. We have someone expound on them. We act as if the Bible is still going to change everything about us. We come by this odd expectation, honestly. From the very beginning, Christians have been a people of the word. In fact, before we were even a people, there were a people of the word from whom we inherited the word. We are a people of the word because we inherited the bulk of our scriptures from the Jewish faith. And it is remarkable that we even have the scriptures today. The ancient people of Israel were not one of the great economic powers of their day, like Egypt. They didn't have great buildings to leave to the world like the pyramids. They never had the military superiority of the Assyrians or the Babylonians who had chariots that they drove into battle and conquered other people with. The Israelites didn't build any of the wonders of the world. In fact, they tended to get run over by the people who built those things. The people of Israel were sent into exile again and again and again. They weren't even allowed to make idols that they could carry with them as a memento from home to bow down to or point to and say, see, this is what we mean when we say God. Through all that they endured, the faith of God's people was sustained only by the constant retelling of stories and scriptures by clinging to the one thing that they had, even in exile, the words that they had heard. They would come together and they would retell the stories of God's plan and the words of the prophets. They would sing psalms and they would study the law. And the people of Israel were this tiny nation caught between the greatest powers of their age. And yet their faith not only survived, it thrived because no matter where they were, their scriptures told them who they were and whose they were. I remember when I first started dating Jennifer, I remember every time I would spend with her family, my mother-in-law is here today, and so she may remember how lost I was. 
in some of those early gatherings. Every time I got together with Jennifer's family, it felt like I was playing catch up. Her aunts and her uncles would mention inside jokes and nicknames and places that made no sense to me. But as I hung around longer, there would come times when somebody felt like telling the whole story behind whatever it was that was making everybody laugh. And I didn't need to hear those stories in order to know that I loved Jennifer. But I did need to hear those stories to know how to love her to know where she came from and how her mind worked and how she related to everyone around her. That's how it was for the church in its infancy. When the early Christians, all they really knew was that Jesus was Lord and Savior, that he'd been raised from the dead. Those early Christians would gather together to read the Hebrew Bible, as we call the Old Testament, and to seek God's power in it. They would search its words so that they could understand how Christ fulfilled the promises and covenants of God, so that they could come to understand how God's mind had been working from the beginning of creation until that day that Jesus ascended in triumph. And then when they would tell those old stories, they began to retell their own stories about what they had heard from Jesus or seen in Jesus. Because as it turns out, world as much by words as God had used words to make the kingdom of Israel. Some of Jesus' words were clear and they were easy. When you pray, Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Easy to understand, easy to do, just repeat the words he told us. But some of Jesus' words are clear and yet more difficult. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Or love your enemies. Clear, not easy. And then some of Jesus' words are just as confusing as they are difficult to follow. Some folks will tell you that Jesus taught in parables because he liked to make things simple for the people. That is always a clue that the person telling you this has never read the parables. Because when you read the parables in the scriptures, what you find is that again and again, the people, even the people who really liked Jesus, often walked away saying, I am not sure what he just meant by that. That is great solace to me after I preach most Sundays. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He said, God's way of doing things is not our way. And that way, God's way is hard for us to learn. It is difficult to make us a part, for us to make it a part of who we are. So we need to hear these stories over and over not to memorize the rules, but to discover how it feels and what it looks like. We talk a lot in church circles about what the Bible is. And not nearly enough, I don't think, about what it does. About how it shapes us, transforms us. About how it makes us into the image of God more deeply than if we just had a handful of rules. It gives us understanding. 
Every so often in the last few months, some of y'all have drawn me aside at one point or another to make me aware of what's called the dolphin way. Which is to say that every particular church, and this one especially, has its particular story and its particular way and purpose in doing things. And you tell me stories because I need to know the stories of the history of the church more deeply than I need a list of do's and don'ts. We want to understand each other. And yet, for all of the particularity of this congregation, of the city of Mobile, all the, the unique and local aspects that happen in every single church, there is one part of our story that we hold in common with all Christians everywhere, and not just everywhere now, but throughout all time. We are not here to create a church in our own image, nor are we here to make it up as we go along. But we long to be guided and instructed by the living God. So we return always to the scriptures that God has inspired to do God's work. Just like Jennifer's family, telling those stories again and again made me a part of theirs. We come to the scriptures again and again so that we can become a part of the story of God and see our own place in it. You can love Jesus without knowing your Bible, but you can't follow him if you don't know where he's come from or where he's taking the world. Second Timothy tells us that all of Scripture is inspired and that it does something to us, that it is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, for training character. Scripture does God's work. And of course, that leaves open a lot of questions for us. I don't have to tell you that people disagree over the Bible all the time. An old banker once told me, you can guess a tree's age by counting its rings. You can guess the age of a southern town by counting the Baptist churches in it. Every few years, one group of Baptists doesn't like how the others read their Bible, and boom, you've got a new church. Within the Methodist church, we have our share of friendly and more serious conversations about the meaning of Scripture. But at the very least, we can agree that God has given us three gifts that help us to discern God's guidance from Scripture and that allow God's power to do His work in us through the Scriptures. God has given us reason and tradition and experience. Reason means that we use the brains God gave us. We aren't afraid of debate, of debate because we believe that Scripture is never threatened by the truth. We don't treat logic or science as the enemies of Scripture because they too point to the truth and the God who made it. If we use out our reason to understand the world better, it can only help us to understand Scripture better as well. John Wesley would teach his followers to take any verse, and especially those that troubled them most, and to look at them in the context of what he called the whole tenor of Scripture. How does this one piece fit into the larger story? We have to use our minds to make those connections, but we are meant to do that. We depend upon the brains God gave us to understand what God is doing in the Scriptures every single day. 
And second, we depend on our tradition, which is just another way of saying that we never read the scriptures alone. In the decisions of the church, the dead always have a voice and a veto, or a voice and a vote, but not a veto. We go to our creeds and our hymns and the songs that are written today, even to things like the book of discipline of the Methodist church. And, and we go to those to say, this is how we've usually understood scripture. Of course, just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean we were right. We always go back to the scriptures again and again to test the tradition to weigh it against the scriptures themselves so that we can pass on a more faithful tradition to the next generation. We rely on the gifts of reason and tradition, and we also call upon our experience when we seek God in scripture. Once again, that doesn't mean that our experience gets to trump the scriptures. We don't get to say, well, Jesus says in the Bible, do this, but it feels better when I do the opposite. But it does mean that we believe that the scriptures will produce a noticeable transformation in our lives. We will see them do something, have some effect. And my shorthand for experience is to say that I am convinced that you don't really understand any particular scripture until you know how it is good news until you know how the transformation it will produce in you or your neighbor is one that leads them more fully into the life that God made them to live. We are a people of gospel. We are called to share good news. And so often we have settled for understandings of the scripture when we couldn't understand how they did good news work in someone's life. But when we want to seek God's will, we read the Bible, we use our brains, we ask others who have believed before and alongside of us, and we prayerfully ask God to reveal to us, how is this good news? And then, just because our hearts are so fickle, we go back to the scriptures again, and again, and again. In the end, we are less concerned that we be the ones who get the scriptures right for all time, then we are concerned that they should read us and get us right. That they search our hearts and try us. That they show us all the ways that our minds have not yet seen what Jesus sees. We want to have the mind of Christ. That night in the darkened chapel, when I looked at that circle of people in front of me, every one of them a sinner and a saint in roughly equal measure, I saw them in a new way. I'm not gonna say that I saw them the way Jesus sees them, but I did see them with a new clarity. And as we let the scriptures read our lives, as we wrestled with passages that were not entirely obvious to us, some of them in that circle shared the words that sounded to them like comfort. And others said, this one feels like a confession. And it occurred to me that what was most remarkable was not that our little group cared to remember the words of a poet who was long dead. What was most remarkable was what God was doing. 
there in that place, we were learning yet again that God had remembered us. That God cared enough to remember us, to listen, to forgive, to lead us into the day to come. You know, if I was going to build a kingdom, that is not how I would have done it. I would have given something a little bit more visible than words. Thanks be to God, it's not up to me. And there, as I saw God building the kingdom and the way that God has chosen, as I sat there watching it happen in the dark and in the cold, I knew something. I knew that it was good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.